Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, we have a super fun episode today. We're joined by Jen Allen from Challenger. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. Excited to be here. And also have my co-host today, Mandy Georgeoff. Welcome, Mandy. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jen. Hi. <laughs> you could probably hear the reason why this is going to be fun is because Jen and Mandy have known each other for nearly 20 years. So I'm going to take a back seat for the most part after I intro Jen a little bit. So she is a key account executive there at Challenger. Zero doubt that you know who Challenger is, but just in case you've been living under a stone, they are a leader in training technology and consulting for complex sales. So I am now going to hand it over to Mandy to take over. I'll just give you a heads up that there's a couple topics we're going to cover. Buyer alignment's one of them. People in politics is another one. And don't be surprised if you hear some references to marriage counseling as well. So Mandy, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you, Jeremy. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. This is such a dream to get to chat with you after um, 20 years of friendship. You are truly one of the most, one of the women I admire most in sales. And I am thrilled to spend a little bit of time with you this morning. I just find you to be so wonderfully warm and fun and funny. The way I would characterize you is like, you're the most fun call of the day. And I know that your customers and prospects feel the same way. What do you love about your job? Like, what do you love about selling? Yeah, I think I have one of the most fun jobs in the world because the benefit I have in my job is everything I sell teaches me something about my own job. So I think one of the reasons I consider myself probably to be an individual contributor for life is because this is a job where you never fully learn it, right? There is always something changing in the way customers buy or you know, the world around us that makes this job totally new and different every year. The thing that working for Challenger affords me is that we continue to study like what is changing and why are things getting harder and what are people doing to adapt to it? So I've always been someone who's just like hungry for learning. And that's one of the things that I think excites me is I'm not talking about the same widget I was five, six years ago. The world around us just changes so much. What other themes are you seeing in terms of how sales has changed. And even in the last couple of years, obviously with COVID, um, big impact there. But what, what are some other things you guys are seeing? For me, the thing that I find really fascinating is just how much, how we behave as consumers is bleeding over into the B2B environment. And so like, that's nothing new, right? That's been happening for years. I do think that COVID just really accelerated that pace. When I look at companies who I've been talking to for years who've said, we're good, we're good, we're good. Like we don't need to invest in sales development. We don't need to invest in changing the way that we engage with our customers. Certainly from a research perspective, what we've seen is 17% of the time that that buyer spends across their buying journey is how much they give to sellers. And not just me as an individual sellers, it's all sellers they're considering. So right, if we do the rule of three, maybe at best I get five, 6% of that buyer's time. And the rest of that time is them doing research on their own, them meeting with the buying committee behind it. Just that notion that, that customers are so much more empowered than they ever have been before really helps us understand why it is so important to change the way that we enter into a conversation, the way that we even ask or earn that conversation with the customer. Like, I just think the implications of that are so insanely big and it gets me really excited when a company recognizes that and says, now what do we do about it, right? So I think for me, just how much that buyer is doing on their own is the change for me, I think, that has shifted 
how I treat customer conversations and, and the way I go to market. I want to ask you about driving buyer alignment. This is one of those statements that you sort of see, right, posted on LinkedIn or in an article and you think like, yes, I should do that. It's critical, right? Like this idea that we shouldn't even start talking about our solution in a complex deal cycle until we our buyer understand what the problem is and, and agree on the problem. And that's really hard. Do you have What advice do you have for how sellers can do that? I love the way you put that, right? Getting your buyers to align not on the solution, but rather on the problem is one of those things that I think you get excited about a deal. You see there's a clear connection between what they need and what you have to offer and you run the solution. And so the buyer does the same thing. They shop the solution around the entire organization without actually getting people aligned on the problem. And so I went through this last year in September on a deal that still to this day, I need to learn that this is never going to, this never happens anymore. <laughs> I spoke with this woman who was like phenomenal. She came into this big, massive enterprise and she was tasked with going out and figuring out what was the sales methodology they wanted to use. Right. And I had a really good call with her. She got it right away and said, this is what I want. And she said, I'm going to have this thing back in a couple of days. And that voice in the back of my head said, don't believe it. But the voice in the front of my head, who was behind on the corner said, no, 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 she's good for it. She's good for it. Right. So that ended up going for, I think it was like an additional three or four months working to close because even though I had her buy-in, right, what she didn't realize, what I didn't realize is there were actually 30 executives that needed to sign off on this thing because it was a global organization. They were a parent, there were all these different divisions. And so what seemed to me like a really short-term easy win ended up being a really, really long and hard one. But here's what I will say. And this is the reason why I get so excited about what I sell because to the point I made earlier, like I see its relevancy in what I do. The thing I had going for me was I had someone who I felt was what we call a mobilizer, right? Someone who not just is a good coach or tells you things about the organization, but someone who had credibility, someone who I knew would stand up and pound their fist in a room and say, we need to talk about this, not someone who would just take my calls and then tell me what I wanted to hear, but someone who was a real, real solid skeptic and I knew had credibility inside their organization. The thing that I find most powerful when I'm selling is I can be saying the right message, right? I can be talking about the pain in the right way. But if I am telling that story to someone who does not have the credibility, who lets everybody in the door and the rest of their peers in the company know that, my message is not going to get the distance that I need it to, right? So part of it is as much as the message is important, the person on the other end of the line I'm telling that message to matters equally as much because in many cases, we just don't have the access and they do. That's piece one, right? I've got to make sure that if I'm talking to someone who doesn't exhibit those capabilities, either one, I know I got to do extra legwork to arm them to actually write the business case for them, or two, I need to think about who else in the organization can I attach this to. Piece two is like, I've got to think about what I am asking them to go discuss with a larger group. And what we've seen is that where you get a lot of excitement from people and where you surface objections and where you surface the things that we don't think of just in the motions of our sales is in the problem. If I am arming them to get really tactical, right? Like if I get off the phone with her and I send her a deck and it's all about how to implement Challenger in her organization, I have completely missed the boat there. Because for the most part, she's new to the organization. She understands the need to change, but she's selling this in to people who are happy with the way they've always done it. 
right? So what I really realized is I needed to arm her with how do I start to help her poke the bear, start to provoke people that we have a problem. When I look at things that I lose, it is almost always because I've failed to do that effectively. So when we get buyers to align and agree, we got to get them all excited about and agreeing to solve the problem first before we get them excited about the solution. What I see, and I think that you probably see the same stats I do, like the buyer committees are getting so much larger, right? And this idea that there were 30 people that had to sign off on that, that doesn't honestly surprise me. That feels really table stakes now and normal. You've got to get so many people to agree. So I want to almost continue on this example. It's just this idea of like people in politics. To your point, if I look back on deals I've lost or now deals that I'm in with AEs on my team where we're struggling, it seems it's that it's that issue of threading the needle with so many stakeholders. So how do you do that? Like imagine, like I'm imagining you got off the phone with this initial contact. She gets it. You've done some of the testing to understand, is she a mobilizer? Does she have influence? Does she have credibility? How do you help her almost like walk the halls to go identify those other stakeholders and then understand their motivations? And I don't know if you have any stories or or examples like that that you can share. Yeah, no, I love that question. And let's keep using this one because I I agree. I think like 30 is probably an extreme on my side, but I mean, our research shows that every year that number increases by 25%. So whether it's 10, 20, 30, the fact is like, if I wanted to go to dinner with 10 people, it would be hard enough, let alone like trying to get them to change their entire sales methodology or the way they think about engaging their customers, right? Like that is a huge, huge lift. That example that you put on LinkedIn recently where you were like, imagine, think back to that time with a group of 10 friends when you all decided to go somewhere for dinner. Like nobody picks the new place to agree on something. Everyone's like, let's just go to the place we've always gone to. Yes. And that's exactly where I I think I go, right? It's like, I perceive my job is to help that woman or that man or whoever I'm, you know, trying to get to go walk the halls to articulate the problem in a way. And we were having this conversation earlier where it's not you have this problem because you are a moron and you made a bad call and shame on you, right? Like, I feel like one of the best lessons I learned about selling came from being in couples therapy like 10 years ago. It's like you think about what we're trying to do and in order for someone to buy your product or my product or any of our listeners' products, in most cases, we have to get them to admit that what they are doing today is not working. And you think about that, right? Like nobody wants to admit that because when you admit that, it means now I have to start doing something different. There's a cost to it. There's an engagement factor to it. It's disruptive. My gosh, my job just got harder. I'm already working so much. Like, do I really want to take this on? And that is our enemy, right? Like that status quo mindset, what I'm doing is good enough, is the biggest thing I think we combat much bigger than any other competitors. Because if they're going to go with a competitor, they have to win that argument too. So in my mind, the thing that I have to do with the customer in the end of the phone is to equip her with how do you go into your colleague's office and start that conversation and get them to realize the problem versus her pointing the finger and saying, you have a problem, you did it. Do you coach your mobilizer or your champion in that? Like, do you actually tactically help them frame those questions? Absolutely. Yeah. So what we often do, or what I often do when when I'm working with someone is one, get them to walk me through, who do you believe will be involved? Now, nine times out of 10, there's always like a few people they miss, right? And that's just because buying changes so rapidly. And sometimes customers don't even know their own like approval systems and things like that. But to the extent that you know it, walk me through who has to say yes. And then now walk me through just like the dynamics of those people. How long have they been here? 
were they involved in implementing the current solution that you guys have in place? Like, how would they articulate the pain? Like, if it's the guy who's responsible for selling new logo, they're not hitting their new logo target. Like, walk me through each individual. But the thing that I, I learned, and again, kind of I learned this from Challenger, if you go and then try to personalize it to everybody's situation, you actually, weirdly enough, end up creating more division than unity. The key is once I get all that information, then I'm looking for what's that common thread across all of these people. Like if I'm writing it down on paper, I actually want to draw that line and say, okay, they care about this, they care about this, they care about this. Now, how do I get them to realize that that outcome or that pain is solvable, right? And that's what I'm trying to equip my prospect to go and have a conversation about. So what are the questions that would help them realize that? What are the you know cases or, or rational drowning like? the data that I can use to help support that so that I can arm her to do that. Because once she does that, then I can say, all right, now let's get everybody in to talk about the problem. Again, not talking about our solution, but let's get everybody in and let's let those skeptics speak up and let's get those people to voice their concerns because we want that now. We want that when I'm there, not you know behind the scenes. Are you in the room typically in a, in a non-COVID environment for these sort of problem discussions or or are these meetings going on internally without you there? Sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. Like I view it as it's probably not a great sign if I'm not, but I will say like there are deals, the one where there were 30 people, I wasn't in all of those meetings, but I trusted my contact because she understood that she needed to sell on the problem, not the solution. And so to some degree, like I'm okay if I'm not in the room, as long as I know my contact can represent the problem really effectively. I wanted to just put a highlight and an underline around something that you did to challenge the punditry, which I love when people do. You know, the pundits are out there saying you need to create and know the professional and personal win for each individual. I've always been a little challenged by that because it's so hard and it can create divisiveness. And I, I love that you, you know, your advice is to find the common win across those people. I am curious on that note, how you track that, you know, do you guys internally at Challenger, do you recommend for others to, you know, to track that information either in a relationship map format or at the contact detail, like really tactically, how do you go about that? Yeah. So there's a template. And for me, I'm like, I love simplicity, right? Like I'm not going to be the person that fills out a three page account plan because I think, gosh, that's time I could be out actually doing some of the things in the account plan. But I do think it's important for me to stay organized, especially in situations like the one we're talking about where there are 30 people. So what I try to do is I map out, here are all the people that my contact has told me are going to need to say yes or could say no to something like this. Here is their current state, meaning like they are someone who wants to preserve status quo. They're someone who wants to change or there's someone who's kind of in the middle and we're going to need to sway them in our favor. And then as my contact has conversations and I learn, here's why they want to preserve status quo. So they were part of making the decision or they don't actually perceive there's a lot of pain. I'm writing down in true like chicken scratch, just like what is their reason for status quo? Because the other thing that helps me do is start to understand trends, right? So 15 of the people say, we actually don't think what we're doing isn't working. I know that if I do get into that call or if it's my prospect that's going into that meeting with all 30 of them, that's the battle that she needs to fight. And I think it's my job to sort of stay organized around that and arm her with that information rather than ask her to do all that. And for those folks that want to stay status quo, how do you help them 
or how do you, whether through you or through your champion, like how do you help them see that status quo isn't working? And I love this comment, right, that you made about like, don't be hard on the person, be hard on the problem, make the problem the enemy. And I know that you and I share a, a, a unique appreciation for empathy and emotional intelligence in these very complex <laughs> and and personal conversations. But like, how do you get someone who doesn't think that status quo is bad, who doesn't think that things are going poorly? How do you help them see a better way? So I love this question because this is a place I think I used to fall down a lot. I would always have this assumption that if I just said, hey, you know, you're not, you didn't hit your growth number last quarter, that person would be like, you're right. And boy, do I need to change, right? Like that, that doesn't happen. People are like, it's because of X, Y, and Z. And there's always an offense defense dynamic to that conversation, right? Whenever we're in that situation where it's offense defense, we're just going to lose. It's rare to find someone who just says like, you're a totally right person I met five minutes ago. I am completely wrong in, in how I assess this scenario. So I think understanding that, recognizing that was kind of step one. Step two is to your point, people don't knowingly make bad calls. They make calls based on the best information they have available to them. And generally speaking, people want to do right by their company, by their teams, by their customers. Recognizing that, knowing that, and understanding that even if I disagree with the way they're doing things today or their status quo, it's not a personal thing. So I think you win in the eyes of a customer when you truly empathize with that. So before you talk about changing their status quo or why they should change their status quo, relating to them, we call it kind of a warmer around why you understand why they are in the situation that they're in. So here's all the things, all the information that led us to believe doing X was right answer. And we get why you're doing that because guess what? Most of the people on your block are doing the same thing too. You know, for me, I always like to say when I'm talking about why companies need to change their methodology. It's like, we did these things. We thought relationship building was the most important thing because it was 10 years ago. Like I did win deals because I sent that pizza when they were hungry. Like that was, that worked. <laughs> the world around us changed and it's not your fault. It's not your team's fault. It's not my fault. Like it's just, it is right. And so aligning people to understand what is the thing that has changed that has caused the thing we held to be a true belief to make us question that and getting leading with empathy to your point and, and helping them understand, like, I am not here to say why you're wrong and I'm right. I'm here to show us that, man, this job is hard. And if we're going to help our people compete more effectively, we really have to adjust and account for these changes. I love the way you put it. That empathy factor is just so important. What do you see ahead? I am desperately hopeful that there will be a return to business travel. I'm missing my customers. I'm missing my prospects. Um, I do think there's probably more of a hybrid in terms of uh, will we travel as much? Will we do as much in-person meetings? What's your take on sort of fast forward 12 months from now? What does the sales world look like? I'll be really honest with you. I have always, always wanted work life to be like this. Like I'm one of those people that is like, okay, like game on. I like it. And I think, you know, I certainly miss that thrill you get out of like walking into that meeting with all the decision makers. That part I think always ups our game. And so I look forward to a world where it's it's hybridized but still skewed more towards remote. The thing that really gets me excited is I do think, like it or not, this environment that we've all been thrust into has forced sellers to up their game. And I think about the type of outreach that I get, like my title can be confusing and people think I have decision-making authority. I don't, but like if I look at some of the emails I get, like 
I'm starting to notice people putting a lot more effort into learning about me and my business and my potential challenges versus just throwing stuff out and saying, here's why our solution is so great. And that makes me so optimistic about our ability as sellers to really change like some of the negative associations that people have with the world of sales. That is so awesome. That's something I'm super excited to see continue. What's something that you do personally when you're engaging contacts now to show them that you're not a machine, right? To show them that you're not just inserting dynamic tags to quote unquote personalize? Jeremy, I love that you asked that because we have been talking about this a lot. So just as a company in January, we made the shift. We used to be kind of like hybrid roles where you would have existing customers and then you would have you know new customers that you're trying to target. And for us, we decided to finally make the switch and do a team of hunters, which I'm on a team of existing account managers. And so for us, what it really exposed to us is we can't just go out there and rely on the brand of Challenger to get us in the door. Personally, what I'm trying to do is in my preparation and in my outreach, I'm not trying to win people to take a meeting or earn that person's time by showing them how great we are. What I am trying to be much more diligent about is saying, can I concisely articulate in a couple of sentences what I've seen the company struggling with and my hypothesis for why that might be as the compelling reason to take a call? But I will say the thing I think I made the mistake a ton of last year is then going into those calls and saying like, okay, here's what I think is causing that. And here's all the reasons I think that. And then taking a second to breathe and saying, okay, what do you think? Right. Versus going in with a true curiosity and saying, I'm just doing the best I can with the research or with the information I have available to me. What am I missing? Right. Like, what am I not seeing that's going on behind the scenes and really trying to make that much more of a two-way conversation. But Jeremy, to your question, showing up front that the call is not about me and what I'm selling. The call is about them and their business and what they're going through. And I think that it's easy to see if a machine did it or you know a human did it if I'm writing like that. You just mentioned something that I think was epiphany somebody gave me earlier this year, which is you know, there are different modes of selling, right? There's relationship selling, there's consultative selling, there's you know, challenger selling. The epiphany I, I got was those are just styles right? And there's styles that you apply in different situations. And there are situations where you might go in and you really do know what's wrong there. And yeah, you have to validate that, but you're going to come and you're going to teach Taylor and take control. But there are other situations where you can't go into teaching mode before you understand and diagnose a little bit more. And you need to be a little more in the consultative mode before you shift over to classic challenger ethos. Yeah. And I think, I think some of the stuff that you've posted recently where you're sparking that conversation has for me personally been really, really eye-opening because when you've got someone like yourself who's got no skin in the game, right? Like you don't work for Challenger, you don't work for Miller, like Herman Miller Hyman, you don't work for any of those people. Like you're just someone who is- Worse than that is I don't even sell. I'm like, I'm the ultimate fraud because I'm a sales strategy and operations person. (laughs) But like, I love seeing the conversation because there's a lot of misnomers that Challengers just show up and start like barking at their customers. But in fact, like (laughs) it's not it. I couldn't agree with you more, Jeremy. Like, I think it's so important if we recognize and are honest with ourselves that we don't know what might be causing the problem. Like you do use discovery to sort of understand that. I think the key for us though is don't do discovery around things that you're just not taking the time to do that you could. So don't go in and ask them how big's the company and, you know, what are you guys trying to do? A lot of that, especially when you're selling to large enterprise should be publicly available, but be honest and say, this is what I tried to find. I couldn't. Can you help me understand what I'm missing here? And I think people generally respect the fact that you you try and you put the effort towards it versus putting it on them. 
I've been seeing a lot of content on LinkedIn, which I totally agree with, which is like, stop asking me for time before you've given me a reason to care. And so if your company sells something of value, you have insight of value to provide to your customers, let them see it. Don't hide the ball, right? We're in an environment where people can go out and learn about it. Do you want to learn them to learn from you or do you want them to learn from another website? Like earn the right to have that conversation. Give them something that shows the time you spend will be valuable. Don't make it about your product. I always think like the conversations we have online reflect the conversations we have offline. And so if I'm posting all about me or emailing all about me and my solution, if I get on the phone, they're going to do the same thing with our conversation. That for me is really important. Getting back to what you said at the beginning, you love being a lifelong seller, that it gives you the opportunity to learn something every day. So my question for you is, what's the most recent interesting epiphany that you've had? I was in a conversation yesterday with Josh, and he talked to me a little bit about what people expect out of a sales experience, right? They expect the seller to have like sales breath and be super desperate and like all about them. And I think what was really eye-opening for me was there are really subtle nuances and subtle ways that you can say things that prevent someone from putting you in that camp. So the very specific example I'll use is a lot of times when we write an initial email, the last line in that email is like, when do you have 15 minutes to discuss this? Right. And if I put myself in the customer's shoes, my gosh, I can't imagine how many emails they get asking for 15 minutes of their time. And so he got me thinking a little bit differently around don't ask for the 15 minutes in time in the first email. He was talking about this idea of just using a really subtle phrase, which is no rush, but let me know if this is something that would warrant your attention or something that you're thinking about right now. I just love that. Most of the time when we write, we are implying a rush. And certainly there is urgency to solving the problems that we're teaching people that they have. But I don't want to feel like you're hovering over me and forcing me. And so for me, I just, it's such a little thing, but I just, I loved it. And I think it totally changes the tone of the conversation. Well, Jen, it was incredible having you on. And I just enjoyed listening to you and Mandy reminisce and geek out on sales. Oh my gosh, this was so great for me. And as usual, I always learn from you. I always learn from Jeremy. So thank you guys. This is is, is beneficial for me as well. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Jen. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.